This morning, I invite you to open in God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Right now, we're in a series called Why the Cross? And just looking at multiple passages from Old Testament and New um, that really help us to understand why the cross? Um, why the cross? Um, as you're finding your way in God's Word, I want to let you know some of the things that I'm so excited about. One of the things I'm so excited about at First Baptist New Orleans um, is the incredible staff um, that God has assembled here of, of godly women and men who are helping to give leadership to the ministry of the church. And I want you to know, like, I think it's always, it's, it's a joy to know that, you know, the leadership that God has provided here at our church is not just a blessing to this congregation, but to so many other congregations. Um, just this, just in the last month, um, multiple of the team that we have here have been giving leadership in different conferences and different um, speaking events and other things around the nation. Um, Stephanie, our director of women to, uh, ministry to women, uh, being able to give leadership to a conference uh, for women up in Cincinnati. Uh, Pastor Corey Barnes being able to travel up to West Point Military Academy and working with Christian students in the military and doing leadership development and, and preaching for them um, in Baptist Collegiate Ministry that's up in that area. Um, looking at, at Pastor Nate Jernigan and his ability to be able to, to be used by the Lord to lead so many others throughout our state, but also uh, among surrounding states, to be able to give leadership in those ways. And, I, and I'm just scratching the surface um, of some of the opportunities that our team has had, including Pastor Noah being able to fly back to South Carolina to his home church and to lead the student ministry in a, in a D-NOW weekend and then to be able to preach that morning at their church. And so just so grateful for all these opportunities. I want you to see how the leadership that God has blessed you with is also being a blessing to other congregations um, and to other ministries around our country. And so we're so grateful for that. Um, this morning, as we turn to God's Word, it's with that idea of how God is using um, our staff, but also using you to be able to make disciples of all nations, that I want to take you back to a moment that, that, um, that Noah Green and I had in North Africa. Well, we had traveled over to North Africa last year in order to do a vision trip to be able to go and to see um, some of the, the missionaries that we have sent as a, as a congregation through the Southern Baptist Convention that are with the International Mission Board, to be able to go and to see the work that they have been giving leadership to for the last probably 18 to 19 years. And just seeing how um, in this place that is 99.99% Muslim. Okay, so just get the feel. This is a Muslim environment. Um, they're in a country in North Africa. And there's going to be a team from our church going back there to partner with them in April. And so you're going to be hearing more about that. And we're going to be praying over them, sending them. We've got to hold the rope as the congregation for those teams that go. We don't all always go on every short-term trip, but we are all part of sending every team. And so we're going to be part of that, that opportunity. But while we were there, we were going from different village to different village. And one of the villages we went to kind of on the back end of the trip, we walked into and the, and the missionary that was giving guidance to us, he says, hey, I want you guys to see something that's really, that's unique here. And, so, and in some ways, it's kind of a, an, an opportunity to have some conversations. And so as we kind of were walking through the area, we all of a sudden came to this large um, structure. And it was... Um, you know, beautiful, it was ornate, all of these things. And he said, I want you to see what's inscribed on it. And as we walked around, what became obvious when you began to look at it is this was a Jewish tomb. And, and, and one of unbelievable, you know, prominence in this village. 
And so we're looking at it, and, and it dates back to even before the, the really rise of Islam in this North African country. And so this presence of this huge, I mean, like, it's like the size of the stage up here. I mean, like this tomb that would have been just the burial place for one um, Jewish man, most likely, probably a rabbi, probably a leader in that area. This tomb, it speaks a message to the Muslim people there of a religion that existed in this place before Islam. Um, if you go there now, all that exists is, is Islam. And, and, and they would almost say, you know, Islam is really, you know, the birth of, of, of our people and all of that. But there's this undercurrent right now that that's not the case. Um, and so in, a, in an apologetic kind of way, even this tomb serves as a reminder of something before that points then for the missionary to something ahead. And so it's with that sort of a framework in mind that we're going to look at a passage that in some ways is a tomb. It's something in the Old Testament. It's something that points back to something that was. But today for you and I, it's something that the writers of the New Testament used and we can continue to use to say it points to Jesus Christ. That this old thing, this thing that seems so outdated, so irrelevant, to our faith today, it actually is the platform for us understanding even better why the cross. And so with that in view, I want to invite you to stand today for the reading of God's Word from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, fifth book of the Bible. In verse 22, we're going to read verses 22 and verses 23. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed... And you hang his body on a tree. You're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are able by your grace to use these things that we, that we may see no relevance to to help us to understand all the more what it is you have done for us in Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, please today, in a way that you alone will receive the credit, will you please use this passage to fixate our hearts and cause faith to abound and a more deep discipleship to emerge in our lives that results in many coming to know this good news. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This is one of those obscure passages. I don't know if you're following through and, and maybe some reading plan this year. As a church, we are always trying to encourage people to be in the Word. Our Bible study groups are a time to be in the Word. We're looking at the Gospel of John. We have some men's and women's Bible studies going on right now. They're looking at First Peter, First and Second Peter. And then, and then during our, our time in God's Word in this room, we're always looking at biblical passages that are taking us to different places in God's Word and looking at these things. But one of my encouragements to you because of the evidence, because of all the data that's been assimilated, that the number one way for you to be a growing Christian is if you read the Bible four or more days a week. It doesn't say how much. You don't have to read necessarily a whole chapter or be doing all of these really developed reading plans. It's just that if you are reading the Bible four or more days a week, you are statistically, based on a study of over 30,000 participants, the most likely person to be growing as a Christian. 
So one of the most important habits that you can develop just personally is reading the Bible. And notice that it's not even just seven days. It's just four days out of seven, which means that you're reading it most days of the week, then you're not. Um, you know, so that, that, that four is, you know, is the, is the crossover moment um, where you're reading it more than you're not. And just think about influence. You know, if I watch something on TV four or more days a week, it's going to begin to influence me. It's going to begin to influence my language. It's going to be, begin to influence my jokes. It's going to begin to influence, you know, even my schedule, how I spend my time, you know, those sort of things. So just think about it as influence. You know, you're inviting the influence of God through his word into your life more than you're not on a weekly basis. And so I want to encourage you toward that end. But if you're following along in the church reading plan that we have made available, then you're reading right now through the Old Testament in addition to some New Testament readings. And can we just be honest for a moment that a lot of times the stuff we read in the Old Testament seems very distant, seems very, you know, like, irrelevant to our world and our lives today. And if we're honest, even a little further, it's like, man, this is kind of confusing, maybe even a little off-putting. And if there's any off-putting chapter in the Bible, or if one that you would include on that list, Deuteronomy 21 is one of them. Um, you know, some of the things that Deuteronomy 21 has to talk about, we would say, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Uh, just even the preceding passage, it talks about what you're supposed to do if you have a stubborn or rebellious son that you were supposed to bring him to the town elders and that because he's giving himself over to rebellion and to drunkenness and gluttony, it says that he's a rebellious son, you're to turn him over to the elders and they are to stone him to death to be an example of what happens when people reject their parents because that's indicative of rejecting the Lord. Honor your father and mother. It's the fifth commandment. And so it's, it's just to show how seriously God takes sin. Well, I mean, none of us can even imagine that today. That if we had a child that began in, in those young adult years or even into the adult years, begins to go a, a, the wrong direction, doing the wrong thing, to say, well, I'm going to have to bring you up to Pastor Chad and the other pastors at the church. And they're going to, they're going to put you to death. They're going to stone you. And then they're going to hang you out front the church to be an example so that other people won't do the same thing. We read that and we are like, that is bizarre. I, I can't imagine. I can't, I can't imagine living in a context like that and of having like a system where, you know, just that small infraction meets with that serious of a consequence. Welcome to the, to the law of the Lord. Welcome to, to holiness. See, brothers and sisters, the reality for us is that we have become far more at home with unholiness and many times tolerating sin even in our own lives that when we become to come, you know, in contact with a passage like this where the holiness of God is on display, it seems absolutely foreign. That speaks a message about us. That says something about us and our understanding of God and his holiness just how holy, just how exacting he is of sin and its consequences. But we've got to rekindle that today. We've got to be able to look at that to make sense of this, this thing called the cross. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense apart from a right understanding of how God sees sin and how seriously he takes it. That idea of even just a rebellious son being put to death is what helps make sense of this. And so I want us today to be able to look at this passage and some others 
that then the New Testament writers take and in just one small treatment in Galatians chapter 3, bring it all together. I want to read a couple of passages to you real quick. We've just heard from Deuteronomy chapter 21, but I want you to hear some other passages that we're going to be pulling from today to be able to look at and to see how the biblical writers are helping us today to understand why the cross? Why the cross? Hear this from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. God's word says this, anyone, anyone, He's speaking to his people, anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. He doesn't say most of the laws. He doesn't say any of the laws. Anyone who doesn't do any of these laws, who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. And all the people will say amen. In other words, let it be. Yes. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, Paul writes, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it's written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. We just read its origin back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Paul goes on, Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. He's quoting there from Habakkuk, a prophet that would be much later than that Deuteronomy passage but communicating a a truth that we're going to get to in a moment. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. This is a quotation back from Leviticus, which would be contemporary to Deuteronomy. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's the quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And then Paul brings it all together. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. These are just a few of the passages that we are going to hold in tension today. Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 27, and then looking at how these two passages are brought together in this one treatment from Paul in Acts chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For us to see the significance and to understand more richly why the cross. Why the cross? Because in it, number one, we see the paradox of the gospel. Because in it, we see the paradox of the gospel. You see, a paradox is when you bring together two things that seem to contradict each other. They don't seem like they go together. Uh, One in Christian living is this thing called servant leadership. It's one of our core convictions here is that we must be servant-led. And so an underlying value that, uh, that contributes to that is this idea of servant leadership. And so, but think about those two words, servant and leadership. There's this paradox. How do these two things fit together? How are you a servant and the leader? The paradox of the gospel is brought together in the cross because it's the bringing together of the perfect obedience of Christ and the humiliating death that lawbreakers deserve. The perfect obedience of Christ, even the cross being the will of the Father. So Jesus going to the cross was his obedience. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't that he had done something deserving the death penalty, it was his obedience, this perfect obedience of the son 
all of a sudden being on display, lifted up on the thing that lawbreakers deserve. That, that those who've broken the law, that's, that's what they deserve. Murderers, people who have caused insurrections and are rebelling, that's what they deserve. Not the obedient son of God, but yet at the cross, the paradox of the gospel is put on full display. John Stott notes this, the fact that Jesus died hanging on a tree remained for Jews an insurmountable obstacle to faith until they saw that the curse he bore was for them. He did not die for his own sins. He became a curse for us. You see, this was part of what caused even Paul most likely to reject the gospel at first and to persecute the church because how could the Messiah, the promised king, die on a cross? God's word clearly says in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. How can the Messiah, who's God's anointed one, remember the paradox, two things, anointed but bearing the, the curse of sin? These two things don't go together. Brothers and sisters, what we need to rekindle and regrasp is that you and I are lawbreakers. You see, when we read passages like from Deuteronomy, we don't think about us. We just think about man, what it was like back then. But Jesus does something for us in Matthew chapter 5 to help make this passage make sense for you and I today. You say, but Chad, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. This isn't relevant for us. It is. And here's how Jesus makes it relevant for us because he helps us to understand the law and that you and I are lawbreakers. When he speaks about anger and murder, he says, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that most of us in this room would quickly say, I've avoided murder. I'm not a murderer. But he moves on to say, but if you are harboring anger in your heart toward your brother, if you are harboring unforgiveness to your brother, hatred, a desire for him to get what's coming to him, for something bad to happen to him, ill will, then you are guilty of murder. You say, well, Chad, I still haven't committed murder. That's based on our valuation of what murder is. But notice who's speaking. This isn't a rabbi. Don't call me teacher. This isn't just some itinerant preacher. This is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is speaking. He is able to speak with an authority that no one else could speak with because this is the Messiah. This is Emmanuel, God with us. So God has the ability to fully interpret his law. I've said, do not murder, but I say to you, if you are harboring anger in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty of murder. Well, what's the implication? That everybody who would have heard Jesus on this Sermon on the Mount, him speaking to the crowds as they sat on a hill and he sat in a boat teaching to them, they would have all understood that he was saying something about them. Because like you, everyone in that crowd that day would say, I have done just that. 
I am guilty of breaking the law. Jesus doesn't stop there. He connects two things that we don't want to connect, lust and adultery. He goes on in verse 27 of the same chapter. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, where did they hear that said? Where did they hear do not murder? In the Ten Commandments. I mean, understand Jesus is interpreting the very core of the teaching of the law. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is God concerned with? Is he concerned with what we do in our bodies? Absolutely. But God is also concerned about what is going on in our hearts. Understand that, that God is not just looking at the exterior of whether you went all the way, whether you acted on the desires of your heart. God is looking at the heart. His people throughout the Old Testament wanted him to be satisfied with right offerings. God, I brought you the prescribed animal. But he says, I'd rather that you keep all of those animals and all those burnt offerings and give to me your heart. Let your heart be torn before me. Don't just tear your, your clothes and throw sackcloth, I mean, put on sackcloth and ashes. Let your heart be torn before me. Repent and return to me. This is God's plea. This is his cry to his people again and again and again. But nobody will return to him. Nobody will repent as long as they don't see their lawbreakers. No one pleads with the judge for mercy. No one asks for pardon and mercy that has not been received, that has not received the sentence guilty. 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 And too many of us, even still, that have grown up in a religious background, that have maybe even grown up in First Baptist New Orleans, we have yet to see that we are guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what the paradox of the gospel reveals, is that the reason that he had to die this death and then to, to be hung up on a cross was because we're guilty, guilty, guilty. According to Christ, we all deserve the death penalty. And indeed, to then have our bodies hung on a public display that the curse of the law is upon us. It's only as we grasp the consequence of our sin that we will cling to the old wooden cross. In its original context, when Moses was writing that the death penalty by cross was not prescribed. It's important for us just to understand a little bit of the history that just in the preceding passage that we look at, a man was to be stoned, adultery was to be stoned, um, idolatry was to be stoned. Stoning was God's prescribed way of capital punishment among his own people. But then this idea of, of putting a, a stoned individual on display, on a pole, on a wooden pole, was to serve in a way to warn. It was to serve in a way to say, this is how God treats sinners. This is what sin deserves. And it was to serve as a warning among the people of God that sin was to be avoided, that, that sin was not to be tolerated among the members because this is what sin deserves. 
But what we see as we continue to gaze at the cross is not simply the paradox of the gospel where the obedient son of God is lifted up on the thing that the disobedient children of, of, of God's creation deserve. But we also look and we see on the cross the perfection of the gospel. We see the perfection of the gospel. That in, the, that in perfectly fulfilling the law, this obedient son of God fully fulfilled the law. Jesus communicated very clearly that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus observed every aspect of the law. So if the, the law said, don't eat, don't touch, then he did not eat. He did not touch in those ways until we come to his public ministry where he begins to evidence and reveal that he has a power to do things to things that are unclean, a woman who's bleeding to cleanse her and stop her bleeding. To be able to touch a dead corpse and rather than becoming unclean, the life is restored to the corpse. That he's able to touch one who has a, a skin imperfection. All of these things being prescribed in the law of the Lord in Leviticus. And rather than being unclean, the leprosy leaves the man. Um, all of these things that would have caused uncleanliness and all of these things, Jesus is showing that he has the ability to heal and to forgive and to give life. But he's obedient throughout it all to the law. He's observing what God has commanded. And it's still a paradox, but really a perfection, a completion, a fulfillment of the gospel that Jesus, this one who's been perfectly obedient to everything prescribed in the law, would even then fulfill the law in being an example hung on a cross to communicate something very powerfully to you and I that our punishment, our consequence has been paid and paid in full. Being hung on a cross, humiliated because of sin, a warning to us all. You see, Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. You see, even the arrangement of the law, as we've already noted, brings us into a bit of a crisis, revealing the perfect arrangement of God's written law. We talked about how in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, that it speaks that if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them, even after they discipline him, his father and mother to take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of his hometown, and they will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then all of the men of his city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. And then right into verse 22, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty. Look at the context. He's just described the death penalty and what's deserved there. And then he says, and if anybody is, and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree. You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you are to bury him that day, for everyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, it's important to note on our way to making this understanding that it's not that if you get hung on a tree, well, then all of a sudden, then you become cursed. But instead, this is to be an example that you were under the curse of the law, that, that, that you were already guilty of sin deserving death. And so that's important for us to understand. It wasn't just that, boy, I hope I don't end up on a tree. I'm fine with being executed for my crime, but I hope I don't do that because then I'm under God's curse. It's, it, this was to just to highlight that this person had rejected God and was under this curse of the law. 
The one stoned in this passage is a son. And while the following passage does not explicitly say that it was this son who was then hung, the context and the content certainly allow for it. And brothers and sisters, you and I are that son. That's part of what God is communicating to us through passages like Matthew chapter 5 and others that help to identify us with the Old Testament people who were in rebellion to God, that we are those rebellious sons. That's us. And apart from the grace of God, we have rejected our parents. We have rebelled against wisdom. We have pursued the flesh. We have gratified the desires of our flesh. We deserve death. And we deserve to be hung as an example of God's wrath against sin. That's what we deserve. Let me just ask you, do you believe that? Has God opened your, your heart to understand that that's what we deserve? We deserve death for our sin. That's why it's so important for us to go back to the Old Testament to see how seriously God takes sin to see what required the death penalty is stuff today that even in our own culture we celebrate and we find laughable. God is saying deserves execution and then public humiliation. And yet it's the perfect son of God who stood in our place and gives us his righteous standing with the father. The, the perfection of the gospel is on full display in the cross because the perfect son who fulfilled the law perfectly even dies and is hung in such a way that it perfectly illustrates a substitute that takes place, a, a, a true substitution. And that leads us right into this final aspect, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the gospel. See, I want you to think for just a moment about how is it that these Jewish people we're supposed to really believe that their sins had been taken away. How are they supposed to really know that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just showing us an example, like, hey, if you really wanna be like a good person and, and do things for other, then the way you do that is you deny yourself and you do stuff like you would even die for people. And so that, that, then the cross just becomes this, man, Jesus was so selfless that he was even willing to like, die for people and, and like in some sort of like illustrative way that like you're supposed to be very selfless in this life. Now you say, Chad, are you saying we're supposed to be selfish? No, but don't miss the point. When we just make this a moral example to follow, that we're just supposed to be basically good people and not be about ourselves and stuff, we completely empty the cross of its significance. It, 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 all it means is be good. Good luck with that. Good luck with just going out and just being a, a good person that tries to tame your own evil desires that work against you constantly, the desires of the flesh, all of these things. All of that is showing that it's not just a moral example. He's not just calling us to be good people. Instead, even according to the law, what was being shown is that if Jesus indeed died for our sins, then what that's saying is that he has borne the curse of the law. In other words, the, the curse of the law has been satisfied. The curse of the law being death, that Jesus died for us. Because remember, that's what we deserve. We're the son that deserves death. And so Jesus died. And it's important for us to see why the cross, because then as soon as he dies, 
Even though he wasn't stoned according to the law, he dies by a crucifixion, which was the Roman way of doing that. The moment he took his last breath, the moment he said, it is finished, there he hung on a tree. And everybody that would have known the law, especially Pharisees and scribes, they would have known, well, that's evidence that this man is under God's curse. That, 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 that this is one that God was opposed to. And, and thus it makes sense. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words from Jesus, quoting from the Psalms, fresh on his lips at the cross. It's important for us to see how all of these things fit together to help us understand that what was happening was this great exchange. Jesus taking on our consequence for sin and then hanging on the cross to show that even by the means of his death, I mean, Jesus could have drowned. Jesus could have just been thrown off a cliff. They tried that. But none of those ways of death would have communicated that this one received the punishment that sinners deserve. That this one was under God's curse than the clear evidence from God's word of being hung on a tree. That's the point that Paul's making. That's what he's trying to help us to connect is that this symbol of our faith this reality of the gospel is at the heart of our understanding of exactly what this accomplished for us, which brings us into the promise of the gospel. Paul says the purpose, purpose of all this was that the blessing of Abraham would come to Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. The promise of the gospel, the gift of God with us by his Holy Spirit is only available through faith. Notice how Paul makes that clear in this passage. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. From the very beginning, this idea of believing, of trusting, was at the core of what it meant to be right with God. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that in light of God's word that God must punish sinners? Do you believe that the consequence of sin is death? Then I have good news for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13. And not only was he crucified for you, he was resurrected for you after being buried for three days. He has defeated sin and gives forgiveness. He has defeated death and gives eternal life to all who trust and follow him in faith. Will you follow him today? What is keeping you from believing the good news of the gospel? Do you still believe the lie Listen, please hear me. Just tune in for one moment. Do you right now still believe the lie that your sin, that your sin, you individually, it's not deserving of death? That this somehow is, was not for you because you're not that bad. The consequences of sin is death. Do you still believe the lie that you're not sinful? 
Have you allowed this measure of, of your righteousness to basically be the worst of humanity? You say, well, I'm no Hitler or Mussolini, so therefore I'm, I'm good. And you've allowed the worst of humanity to become the standard by which you have graduated and therefore are without sin. Do you still believe the lie that you can be forgiven by paying off your sins? Basically, this understanding of salvation that says, as long as you do more good than bad. That's how you, that's how you pay God off for forgiveness, is you do good rather than bad. That's, that's how this works. Nothing comes free. Do you still believe the lie that all religions are basically the same and you just see this Jesus as optional, like it's just a preference? It's like, well, Chad, if that's what you believe helps you, that's cool, but I don't think we should impose that on other people. Please, this is God's truth, not my opinion. I have read and taught you God's word, not mine. You have seen what is written. You have heard the words of Jesus himself. And so the question becomes for each one of us today, will you humble yourself today admitting that you're a sinner and asking God to forgive you by placing your faith in Jesus to save you? You see, if you do, he will because he never says no to one who comes to him asking for forgiveness and trusting in him. But the reality is we've received some of the results from the survey that we took a few months ago is that over 98% of you in this room right now are a believer. That's, our, that's the statistic for the gathered church. And that's not a bad thing, but it does communicate very, something very important for us that most of us in this room are already saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm, I'm already a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this has to be a message that causes us to no longer be comfortable with sin, to no longer be okay with an unholiness just to reside in our life, but that the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for us, that, they, that his obedience led him to this place of dying for you and I should lead us once again into an obedience to him in every part of our life. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, then I ask you for a moment to spend time with the Lord. Some of you may need to come to these steps and spend time in prayer just asking for forgiveness once again. Just saying, God, I have so gone my own way in the area of what I'm doing on my phone. God, I've so, so gone my own way in resisting your word that says, do not be a lover of money. God, I've gone my own way in allowing myself to gratify my flesh with food, with drink, with pleasures. God, I have gone my own way and I return to you humbly. You see, Habakkuk becomes a key passage for us today to understand. The righteous will live, will live by faith. Habakkuk was written to the people of God. Habakkuk was written to a people that had been in rebellion against God and were experiencing the judgment of God on sin. And he proclaims to them, the righteous will live. They will live. They will live by faith. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live out this faith. It's not meant to be a first, you know, a confession you make when you're a child and then that's it. You are to live the faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And for many of us today, that is not obvious to us or anyone else. And so let this be a time of returning to the Lord. Wherever you are, I invite you to meet with the Lord in these moments. There's gonna be music playing in this moment. Pastor Gary's gonna be standing right here and I'm gonna be here. But these steps are open for you as the people of God to come and to just confess sin, to return to the Lord with your hearts, to come back to the reality of the cross and what sin deserves and what sin costs God in the gift of his son. And so I invite you to come and be with the Lord and turn from sin and trust him today. If you're here today and you've never done that, and for the first time in your life, you want to follow Jesus, come to Pastor Gary or myself. We wanna pray with you. We wanna begin a relationship called discipleship where you begin to grow in your faith. Let's all stand. Father, I pray that in these moments of response, that you will meet with us as your people. Lord, we confess that it's so easy for us today to lose sight of living by faith. And that what you've called us, God, to have faith in is what you have done in your son. So Lord, please, would you refocus us today? I pray that this moment right now would be a time for the church to turn from sin, to repent, to turn away from it, and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Pray that for every person in this room, Lord. You are gracious, abounding in love. And so Lord, meet with your people this morning. Purify us and make us ready for the day of Christ. And Lord, for the one in this room, the one in this room right now who is here and more than anything, they need Jesus to save them. I pray they would have the courage to come forward today and say, I want to follow Jesus. So Lord, please respond now in your grace. Lead us by your spirit and make us ready for the day of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You respond now as we sing.